0: So after being asked a series of questions designed to entrap and entangle him in his words, here Jesus turns the tables and he went on the offensive and instead of waiting for them to conjure up yet another dubious inquiry, he approached them and asked the gathered Pharisees a question. And this question speaks to a very specific and a very peculiarly Jewish conversation, a line of dialogue unique to Israel for centuries. You see it in verse 42. Here's the question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Or what do you think about Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, we might think that such an intra-Jewish, highly localized, confined, and concentrated question, that such an inward-focused discussion might actually carry no weight for us. I mean, what does a small issue between Jesus and the religious leaders figuring this out themselves have to do with us? But the question that Jesus asked here has to do with his identity. And the answer to the question that Jesus asks here has an incalculable effect and impact on how we understand Christ's nature and Christ's person and on the reasons why we worship and we exalt and we adore and we magnify Him the way that we do. You see, there are certain doctrines and certain theological truths that are so absolutely crucial So important, so pivotal, so significant that to deny them places a person outside of the Christian faith, into the realm of heresy and heretics. Now that word heretic is often thrown around, it's a strong word and it gets thrown around rather haphazardly, probably more frequently than it should. But there are, as I said, times when it is not only acceptable to use that terminology and phraseology, but times when it's demanded that a person with false or faulty doctrinal perversions are called what they are, heretics. I want you to think about the Christian faith for a second like it were a country or a nation. Think of our own nation. We have both provincial borders and we have national borders. We have borders within the country that we can freely travel across and still be in Canada, right? You can travel across border after border and get to BC and you're still in Canada. Whether you're in Ontario or whether you are BC, you are still in the same country. And then we have our national borders. These are borders that when threatened, a war would be triggered. These are borders that, should we cross over them, we are no longer in Canada anymore, but we are in another country entirely. And in many ways, Christian doctrine and theology can be described in this way. There are certain second-tier doctrines that numerous faithful, God-fearing, and Christ-exalting men and women can disagree, and we still fellowship with one another, and we still serve our Lord together for the sake of the gospel and the Great Commission. Think of these as your provincial borders. Whether you're in Alberta or Manitoba, you're still in Canada. Whether you go to a faithful Bible-preaching Presbyterian church or the faithful Bible-preaching Baptist church, you're still in Canada, if that makes sense. There are, however, certain first-tier doctrines that cannot be denied, and to do so puts you outside of the Christian faith. To deny them is to make war against the national boundaries of Christianity. To contradict or repudiate them is to cross outside of the nation and live in another one. To declare oneself outside the Christian faith. And to reject these particular doctrines means you are not a Christian. And worse, the early church would have called you a heretic. And so, the question here that Jesus poses to the gathered Pharisees on this day speaks to one of our most cherished, one of our most defended, one of our most fought for national borders. One that faithful followers of Christ have labored to defend for thousands of years. And so, this morning, we're going to be looking at the answer to Christ's question from a number of different angles historical, theological, and textual. And we're going to look at some of the perversions and the battles and the councils that have been convened to clarify this issue. Because, to be honest, there really is no question more important than this one. There's no question more important than the one Christ asked the Pharisees on this day. Even though it's couched and tucked away as it is within Jewish rabbinic arguments, there is no more important question than this. And it is for this reason, because the answer either saves souls or damns them, Satan, along with the entire host of evil aligned with him, have sought for millennia to confuse, to garble, and to complicate this issue, because so doing fits with his agenda of lying to you, of stealing from you, and ultimately putting to death your soul. So what's the question? What's this question that is so significant and important? Look at verse 42 again. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? In other words, who do you think the Christ is? Who is Messiah? You see, the forces of evil have feverishly and furiously employed themselves in hiding from you, in shielding, in blurring, and in distorting the answer to this question. And the answer to this question, I'll give it to you right up front, according to the councils and the Bible and Jesus here, is this Jesus, the Christ, is God Himself come to us in the flesh. He is both truly man, as descended from the line of David, and the very Son of God Himself, co equal, co eternal, of the same essence and nature as the Father. Again. Jesus, the Christ, is God come to us in the flesh. He is both truly man as descended from the line of David, and he is the Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal, of the same essence and nature as the Father. So let's explore that for a bit. If you are a student of church history, you will know that most of the early church's battles For purity of doctrine against heresy surrounded and revolved around this very truth. As numerous heretics challenged and contradicted the plain biblical revelation that Jesus is indeed the perfect God-man. He is God come to us in the flesh. He is, as the Apostle John wrote in John 1, the Word who was God and became flesh and dwelt among us. But it did take the church a few centuries to fully iron out and flesh out and clarify this incontestable scriptural position on the subject. And now, you might ask now, well, why would it take so long? Why would it take a few centuries to iron this out? Well, for the first 300 years of the church's existence... The vast majority of those who trusted in Christ for salvation and were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit spent most of their time, spent much of their time fleeing from persecution, running for their lives, so to speak. Running for cover as legal authorities and government officials and pagan acquaintances and former friends and even family members turned against them, mistreated them, abused them, harassed them, and outed them as those suspected of following Jesus Christ. And during these 300 years of mistreatment, numerous Christians lost their lives in some of the most horrific tortures you could imagine. Why? Because they confessed the name of Jesus as perfect God-man. And during this time, the act of baptism... Which is the public symbol of one's identification with Christ carried with it grave, (coughs) sorry, grave consequences. To be baptized was to put your very life in danger because you'd publicly revealed and outed yourself as a Christian. And the same is true in many countries throughout the world today. To be baptized in obedience to the command of Christ and the apostles is one of the most dangerous acts one could ever commit. But the early church refused to disobey the command and many of them died for it. Just as an aside, it's a far cry from how many of us see baptism today, right? We see many of us see baptism as some kind of optional add-on um, to be, even, of, even to be avoided if we don't possess the sufficient courage to speak in public or any a number of other reasons. But know this, in the early church, the idea of someone professing Christ and putting off baptism was simply unheard of. It's a foreign idea to the New Testament. To profess Christ and not be baptized in His name is to disobey a direct command of both the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. So we're having a baptism service on December 10th. Get at me. And so many of the great Christian minds of the day spent a lot of their time defending the Christian faith, not theologically per se, but from the accusations and attacks leveled against it by those who hoped to paint Jesus and his followers in the grossest of colors. The great theologians like Justin Martyr, if you go back, he was an early, early, early apologist, an early defender of the faith. And he spent the majority of his time speaking to, uh, for the Christian faith against the Romans who accused Christians of being antagonistic to Roman culture. That was one of the big ones. They would say, Christianity is a religion that is based around the worship of a criminal. And even more the Romans, the pagan Romans would say, why would you ever follow the Christian religion? They practice cannibalism because we drink the blood of Jesus and eat the flesh in our communion, right? So they took that very literally and spread the rumor that Christians were cannibals. And so a lot of our early uh, church fathers spent their, time, spent their time addressing these types of, of uh, accusations. See, during these early years, Christians were engaged in a bitter struggle to survive in a culture, to survive in a society, to survive in a nation that was hostile toward everything that it stood for. But then, about 300 years in, a massive, monumental paradigm shift occurred as the Roman Emperor Constantine professed Christianity. Christianity. And in that moment, Christianity turned from the object of Roman scorn into the new and fashionable religion. You see, before this moment, heretics were quite limited because heretics simply don't put their lives at risk for their false beliefs. They instead tend to wait until something is in vogue, then align themselves with it, add novelty to it, and incrementally turn it in their direction and away from the truth so that they might be honored and they might be financially uh, secure because of it. I want you to think about it. How many heretics do we find in persecuted regions? Not many. I've been listening to an a podcast called the MacArthur Center Podcast for Expository Preaching. I've been highly edified by it. I suggest it and uh, to everyone. And in a recent episode, Dr. MacArthur spoke of his experiences during the '80s at the rise or at, when the USSR was still around. He spoke of his experiences traveling to certain European nations in the '80s to equip and to train and to encourage and to teach the pastors leading the underground churches throughout the country before the breakup of the USSR. It was a heavily persecuted church for the most part, but it was a relatively pure church comprised of true believers ready to die for their faith. He recounts the response of these same pastors when the USSR fell. On the one hand, they were happy about losing the crushing weight of communist persecution... But on the other, they were grieved by the fact that this now meant that heretics would flood into their country and spread poison throughout what was up to this time a fairly pure underground church. Again, heretics don't align themselves with movements that may cost them their lives. They wait until they can utilize those movements to their fleshly or financial advantage. The same is true for the early church, post-persecution. Now that the Christian faith had become the fashionable religion throughout the Roman Empire, the heresies and the heretics exploded in number. And almost every one of them struck at the very heart of the faith. The question that Jesus asks in our text was the very issue that they almost all centered around. Who is the Christ? Just a quick overview. I'm going to give you three. These are the major ones. A quick overview of some of the early false teachings and teachers included this. The first being Ebionism. I'll spell that for you if you want, if you're taking notes. E-B-I-O-N-I-S-M, Ebionism. So this was a group that taught That while Jesus was indeed spiritually superior to ordinary humans in a few ways, most notably in that God singled him out for the divine favor of being filled with the Holy Spirit in a manner like, but a little more intense than the Old Testament prophet, overall, Jesus was no different and was not distinct from any other human being. And certainly not God come in the flesh. So this heresy denied the divinity of Christ and, then, and so fell far short of his actual identity as the perfect God-man. On the other side of the spectrum, you have what's called docetism. I'll spell that for you as well. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism. The name, that word, actually means to appear. And as such, they taught that Jesus, when he lived on earth, was a mere phantom. He was a spirit. He was a mirage who only seemed to be human, but his humanity was actually an illusion. Because they taught the physical realm was beneath God, God would never assume that physicalness to himself. It's the complete opposite of Ebionism. The docetists taught, did actually think of Christ as God, did actually think of Christ as divine, but completely denied his humanity. They denied that he was God in the flesh. They said he was only a spirit, and all of the experiences of Christ throughout his life, his suffering, his eating, all of that, were only illusions. He only looked like he was suffering and looked like he was eating, but he was not actually doing any of those things. So this heresy denied the humanity of Christ and so fell short of his actual identity as the perfect God-man. And then there were a number of heresies that kind of went in between those two and they got really fine and minute in their distinctions with each leader trying to turn people to his direction, to his doctrine, to his offshoot so that he might be the one that they all look to and appreciate rather than Christ himself. But the the single most devastating and far-reaching of these early heresies was one called Arianism. Arianism is a position that is still held to and taught today by some of the churches. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they cling to this heresy. This is the centerpiece of their theological system. It arose because one of the more influential bishops in one of the larger churches in the Egyptian city, sorry, of Alexandria, a man named Arius began teaching these things. Listen, one, God the Father and God the Son do not have the same essence, meaning they are not both God. The Son, number two, the Son, Jesus Christ, is actually God's first created being and is not to be called God, but instead to be recognized as the first and foremost among created beings. So, you can go into the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and you will see in Colossians 1, for example, where it says, uh, um, All things were created through him, by him, and for him. They'll put a little bracket that says, All other things were created through him, by him, and for him. All other things beside himself, they mean. Number three, although the Son is the one through whom the Father created the universe, And he existed before all of them. There was nevertheless a time in eternity when the Son did not exist. It was a pernicious and horrible error, error that almost ravaged and destroyed the church right from the outset. Now, Some people will give me a little bit of grief because of my penchant for precision and particularity of doctrine. However... This most serious of all errors in the history of the church, the one that almost poisoned the well and consigned her to heresy that would have spread throughout the ages, came. the entire debate came down to a single letter, an I. In one Greek word, homoousia, which means of similar substance, or homoousia, which means of the same substance. That I nearly brought the church into centuries of heresy. The question is, is Jesus truly the God-man? Is Jesus truly very God of very God? Or is he a created creature of a similar substance in essence, but not the same substance in essence of God? And the early church father Athanasius, remembered by many today as the champion of orthodoxy, defended the biblical doctrine of Christ's deity. And the, this debate raged and got so heated throughout the entirety of the Roman Empire that the emperor himself had to write letters to all of the church leaders throughout the empire telling them, you guys have to turn the heat down. But it didn't work. And so he gathered the council, he convened the council of Nicaea, a very pivotal and crucial moment in Christian history. 318 bishops from across the Roman Empire gathered and debated the subject. And as Arius got up to speak his ideas, tradition tells us that the 317 of the bishops, one of them abstained, 317 bishops found his ideas so blasphemous that they screamed heresy as he was speaking them, and they took his notes, they trampled it underfoot. Tradition also tells us that Nicholas, the man that we uh, base that culture bases Santa Claus on, that Nicholas was so enraged by Arius Arius that he got up out of his seat, walked across the floor, and punched him in the face. Athanasius stood up and argued that Christ is that, that Arius' view that Christ is God's first created creature violated Scripture. The only, true, only the true and perfect God-man could save humanity. And the council voted 317 yes, one abstention, unanimously siding with Athanasius and drafted, thankfully, the first version of what would become the Nicene Creed, a very important creed that defines for us the Orthodox view of Jesus Christ. Let me read a little bit of it. This is the creed which we and all Orthodox non heretical churches ascribe to. This is a national boundary. We believe in, and I quote, we believe in one God, the Father, all sovereign maker of heaven and earth, and of all things, visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten. Now let me just explain that word. When they put only begotten there, they mean this. The unique Son who shares the same divine nature as the Father. The only one of this kind of Son who is from the Father and is of the very same essence as the Father. That's what is meant by only begotten. So one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten, Son of God, begotten of the Father before all the ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance, that means inseparably one with, of one substance with the Father through whom all things were made, who for us men, (coughs) sorry, And for our salvation came down from the heavens and was made flesh of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures and ascended into the heavens and sits at the right hand of the father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead of whose kingdom there shall be no end. That's our Lord. And in the earliest version of the creed, we also read these words. And those who say, quote, and those who say there was a time when he was not, and before he was begotten, he was not, meaning he didn't exist, and that he came into being from what is not, or those that allege that the Son of God is of another substance or essence. There's that little I. Remember that I that almost ruined everything? That word there would have been, he is a homoousios, a different substance rather than a homoousios, which is the same substance. Any who say that he is of another substance or that he is created or changeable or alterable, these the church anathematizes. Anathematizes. That word means condemns as cursed heretics. It's a big deal, hmm? All of these debates, however were answered by Jesus in the question he posed to the Pharisees on this day. And Athanasius, along with the bishops and the framers of the Nicene Creed, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying in our text today. And if you go back to our text, you will see that Christ had already posed a similar question to the disciples back in Matthew chapter 16, you remember it. In Matthew 16, verse 15, he asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? See, the crowds were stumped and they were mystified as to his identity, but Peter, speaking on behalf of the twelve, piped up and said, You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Which is, according to Jesus, the correct answer. And Jesus told Peter that such high and lofty knowledge could not have come to you naturally. It had to be revealed to him by the Father in heaven. You see that in chapter 16, verse 17, when Jesus looked at Peter and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now this idea That Jesus is the Son of the Living God is a most important fact missed by oh so many Jewish scribes and religious leaders throughout the centuries of Old Testament biblical interpretation. You see, everyone in Israel knew, everyone in Israel held to the fact that the Messiah would come as a human being, physically descended from the line of David. King David in fulfillment of the promise that God made to him through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You read this and here's what it says. When your, David's, days are fulfilled, and you, David, lie down with your fathers, I, God, will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, the Lord promised to David a king who would reign forever would descend from his line and that his throne would be established forever. And this promise is something that the Old Testament psalmists and prophets repeatedly sang for joy to the Lord over. Listen to Psalm 89. Ethan the Ezraite singing for joy over this promise in verses 1-4. to He wrote, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish... Your offspring, thanks, brother, forever and build your throne for all generations. That is the, a very kind gesture. Thank you. Thank the Lord for water. And it's cold, too. It's beautiful. And the prophets also, even in the times just preceding the exile, still clung to this promise. As the Lord said, for example, through Amos, in that day I will raise up the booth of David, or this is Micah actually, Micah, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches, This is yeah, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old. And also through, oh that was the Amos, sorry. I uh, put everything in red. That was Amos. And then in Micah, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. So you see, all of these prophetic words concern Messiah and spring from the promises that God made to David centuries before. All of these promises speak to the humanity of the coming king descended from the physical line of David. Meaning, he's going to be a human. He's going to be truly man. But this was never in question. This was never in doubt for the ancient Hebrews. You see that in their answer to Christ's question in verse 42. Look at it again. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Look what he says. They said to him, the son of David. Meaning, he is the human descendant of Our great king David. So while the humanity of Jesus was never doubted by anyone in Israel, none of the religious leaders or none of the average Jews returned to Jerusalem after the exile ever spoke of or referred to him as the Son of the Living God. Son of David is very common, Son of God, not so common. Even though a few Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament did indeed speak in such terms, Psalm chapter 2, for example, which is a Messianic psalm, spoke about the Lord's anointed, the Christ, the Messiah, saying this in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And later in that same psalm, we read this, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son. S-O-N, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And even more clearly, hear the word of the Lord through Isaiah the prophet, speaking the prophetic word of God some eight centuries before uh, Messiah's arrival. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is born, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, did you notice the connection here that Isaiah made between the Son given and the titles ascribed to that Son? Did you see them? Mighty God, Everlasting Father. For anyone to claim such a title for themselves, the Son of God, with a capital G, was to take upon themselves and to ascribe to themselves the hallmarks peculiar to God himself. To define and classify and earmark oneself as the Son of God is to reveal themselves to at least believe that they are indeed mighty God. The idea being that human sons possess the same nature and the same essence as their human parents. The Son of God also possesses the same nature and essence as His Divine Father. Like brings forth like. And for every single human being who has ever lived except for one, the Lord Jesus Christ... To take upon yourself the, the title Son of God with a capital G constitutes the severest and most deviant form of blasphemy. Something the Pharisees knew. They knew what it meant for someone to take to themselves the position and title of Son of God. And we could see it play out a number of times within in the Gospels. For example... When Jesus and the Pharisees interact in John's gospel, we read things like this in John chapter 5, verses 19 to 22. Here's what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do you hear the clarity with which Jesus speaks here? Jesus intelligibly, plainly, and distinctly speaks of himself as the Father's Son in John chapter 5, going so far as to say that the Son is to be honored just as the Father is honored. If he is not God in the flesh, there is no greater blasphemy than what he has just said. Because as we read in Isaiah chapter 42, the Lord said this, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory, I give to no other. And here Christ declares Himself worthy of the same honor And later in John's Gospel, we'll hear Jesus praying in John chapter 17, saying these words, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here, Jesus claiming to be the Son given, the very Son prophesied through Isaiah, and using that title for himself is a direct claim made by Jesus to his identity as mighty God. A fact that didn't escape the notice of the Pharisees, as, they, as John wrote in John chapter 5, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, Jesus revealed his identity over and over again, in word and in deed, and they weren't able to grasp it or accept it. And so instead, they sought to execute him for blasphemy. Even for Peter and the Twelve, while they could say that Jesus is the Son of the Living God, they still couldn't grasp what that actually meant. And when Jesus outlined for them all that the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of the Living God would do, namely, go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter, if you recall, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him because Peter's idea of Messiah had no room for someone suffer, for him to suffer and die. And so in that moment... Peter sounded more like Satan the confuser, like Satan the liar, like Satan who inspires false and faulty and heretical thoughts, opinions and judgments concerning Messiah. And Jesus points this out with, the, with absolute clarity to Peter when he said to him in no uncertain terms, Get behind me, Satan. This has been Satan's priority from the moment God announced his intention to deal with the curse brought about by Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. When God, in his grace, rather than wiping mankind out, instead promised in a rebuke to the serpent that, in in Genesis 3.15... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From that day forward, Satan has, in his typically sinister and malicious way, sought to confuse humanity about who Jesus actually is, to blind our eyes to the true identity of Messiah as he had done to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. As Jesus now moves from being questioned to initiating the conversation with the Pharisees by asking them this question, the point is of the interaction is to prove to them and to us exactly who Jesus is. To clear up the confusion, to explain, to illuminate to everyone listening that he is oh so much more than a mere man, but is in fact the perfect God-man. And so you see it, while the Pharisees were gathered together in verse 41, Jesus came to them and asked them this question. And envision Jesus here being gracious as he brings the question to them. In asking the Pharisees who have arrayed themselves against Jesus, he is displaying yet another gracious opportunity to them for them to see who he is, and believe in his name now they'll refuse and then jesus will go on to the the woes in chapter, chapter 23 which we'll get to very soon but even as jesus so soundly proves their errors concerning his identity they still refuse but again see the question in verse 42 what do you think about the christ whose son is he Now listen, this really is a softball question. Jesus is just kind of like, here you go, I'm giving you one. When he asks it, he actually means, from whom does the Christ descend? Whose offspring is the Christ? And as we've already noted, the answer to this question was universally accepted and recognized by the Pharisees and by all the Jews. And you see it in the answer, the son of David. Now, that phrase, the son of David, carried with it, however, exclusively nationalistic and militaristic overtones. See, in their mind, this son of David would be the powerful liberator of Israel who comes to crush the head of Roman oppression and reestablish the nation of Israel, ushering her into a golden age like that experienced under the later reign of David and King, the reign of King Solomon. And while they are not wrong about this, they are confused about the timeline as to when it's going to happen. We know Messiah will indeed return a second time to fulfill to the letter all of his promises to repentant Israel. But the first time he came, this first time he came to accomplish something even more spectacular, he has come to seek and to save the lost. He has come to live the perfect sinless life that God requires from every single one of us who would be acceptable to and accepted by him. He has come to atone for the sins of all who turn to him in faith and in trust. He has come to pave the narrow path to eternal life for all who call out to, and for all who believe in his name. And the reason that he can accomplish so spectacular a work is that he is so much more than simply David's human offspring. It is because he is truly God come to us in the flesh. It is because he is truly and perfectly human and truly and perfectly God at the same time in the same person that he can save us. He is the only one who exists who is perfectly suited to represent God to man because he is divine and he is man and to represent man to God as mediator because he is divine and he is man. So when the Pharisees say he's the son of David, they are correct but they're incomplete. As Messiah, Jesus is both David's son by lineage, but also David's Lord, David's God. And Jesus is about to prove this by appealing to Psalm 110. This is a truth that the apostle Paul opened his letter to the Romans with. If you look, Romans chapter 1, verses 1-4, to 4, we read, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice that Paul wrote concerning Jesus himself that he was descended from David. Matthew did the same thing at the outset of his gospel. Right in the very first verse of Matthew's gospel, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I want you to think about this fact just as an aside. The Pharisees more than anything hoped and wanted to disprove every single one of Jesus' claims. Right? The easiest way to have done that would have been to study the archives at the temple to determine whether or not Jesus actually did physically descend from David and therefore have a claim to being Christ. Pastor John MacArthur speaks to this very point in his commentary, writing this, and I quote, Until the temple was destroyed in 8070, meticulous genealogical records of all Jews were kept there. That information was not not only was essential to establish Levitical and priestly lineage for men as well as their wives, but for many other purposes as well. No one could hold a position of responsibility in Israel whose genealogy was unverified." It is therefore certain that the authorities had checked Jesus' genealogy and discovered that his descent from David was legitimate. Otherwise, they would have exposed him as having no claim to the Davidic heritage and all discussion about his possible messiahship would have ended." End quote. So these men know that Dave, Jesus does indeed descend from David and so does have a claim to perhaps being Messiah, something the Pharisees are working hard to deny. But Jesus continues. He doesn't end with allowing them to just think of him on the human level. He continues telling them they possess too low an opinion of Messiah and recites for them Psalm 110 verse 1. Now this verse is quoted more in the New Testament as a messianic prophecy than any other prophecy in the Old Testament. Look at it in verse 43 and 44. How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him, that's the Christ, Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In essence, Jesus said, if Messiah was a mere man, or human only, how or why is it that David himself, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit, ascribes to Messiah, his son, the title of Lord? How is it that David's physical descendant is also his Lord? You see, in these days, such honorifics were not used by fathers for their children, but children to their fathers. And yet, here is David applying the single highest honorific one could to his future son. Look at the quote again. The Lord said to my Lord. What we see here is Lord and Lord. The first Lord, if you go back to the uh, psalm, is the personal covenant name of Yahweh. You'll see it is all capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that in your Old Testament, that is the personal name of God. The very name God revealed to Moses out of from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. The second title, The Lord said to my Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. And this is a term used throughout the Old Testament as a substitute for the divine name Yahweh. It's an alternative title to the name. We see this, for example, in Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, where David wrote this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Yahweh Adonai, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. So when you see capital L, O, R, and D, or when you see capital L and then small O, R, D used in the Old Testament, both of these are terms that belong exclusively and only to the God of Israel. So in Psalm 110.1, we see that the conversation that is taking place is between the God of Israel and the God of Israel. The conversation is between God and God, between two that share in the same essence, between two that are divine and deity, and yet they are two that are distinct from each other, yet who comprise one Lord. See, this relationship does not violate the description of the Lord given in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, where the Lord himself says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Psalm, meaning that Psalm 110.1, in Psalm 110.1, we see the Father conversing with the Son. And this is revealed to David by the Holy Spirit. The triune Godhead is revealed in this text inspiration of the Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord. And David understood. He understood that his descendant, the Messiah, the King who will reign on the throne, is also his sovereign Lord, his sovereign Adonai. The conversation continues as the Lord said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. See, sitting at the right hand of the Lord here indicates a continuous sitting. As the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he sits in the seat of exaltation. He sits at the right hand of the Lord in the position of highest status and greatest honor. It is the seat that is co-equal in rank and in dignity and in authority with the Lord. And the reign of this King will far exceed that of David or Solomon. And Yahweh, shares the divine reign and the conquering power from his seat until every single last one of the Lord's, the Adonai's enemies, is subdued. You see that, that phrase, until I put your enemies in your feet. Now, If you're looking out at the world and you're concerned and you're worried about all of the people that are arraying themselves against Christians in the church and against God and you see all of the evil taking place and you feel like there's just a number of evil people taking the leadership, taking leadership in the world and controlling the, the levers of power, this verse is for you. The phrase, until I put your enemies under your feet, pictures all of the enemies of Messiah lying before Him in the dust as He puts their, His foot on the necks of them, conquered. That's, the, that's what the phrase is symbolic of. It presents to us a picture of a completely trounced, completely annihilated enemy. Yahweh has guaranteed to the Lord Adonai the ultimate victory. All enemies of Messiah, should they continue in their rebellion, are doomed to this end. His foot on their neck as they lie in total defeat. This is, for the Christian, most wonderful and blessed news, but if you're unsaved in here this morning, this ought to be for you the most horrible and tragic news as you will be one under whose, on whose neck the foot of Messiah is placed. For all of you who love the Lord Jesus Christ and know that at this moment he is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, also know that the Father has guaranteed to the Son that every single last one who has set himself against the Lord and his anointed, all of the people in the world today who think they have power, who think that they have control over you, who think that in the end they will be victorious, every one of them will be utterly routed and pulverized into nothing more than a fine powder. So the Lord has already declared it to be so. The Lord said to the Lord, "Sit here until I make your enemies or until I put your enemies under your feet." And Jesus continues in verse 45. So if David calls him Lord, how then is he his son? Meaning, if David applies the title Adonai to Messiah, then how can Messiah simply be a man only? The point Jesus is making to the Pharisees here is your conception of Messiah, the one that you have aligned and arrayed yourself against to entangle and plot against, the one that you gather together to find ways and strategies to kill is no mere man, but is the very Son of God Himself. So you see what Jesus has revealed to them? That he is the perfect God-man. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has been in conversation with God since before the foundation of the earth. He can ascribe fairly and legitimately to himself titles that apply to Yahweh alone. He is indeed God come to us in the flesh. And after Jesus said these things to them, look at verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. No Pharisee, no Sadducee, no lawyer, no one. Christ's penetrating insights and expositions into Scripture stunned and silenced all of them. And all of them recognized that they were no match for the tour de force that is Jesus Christ. None of them realized that they could match Jesus' awesome knowledge of Scripture. But even though Jesus identified himself quite clearly here, Satan continued to blind the eyes of the Pharisees so that they refused to listen to him and believe. And Satan's work continues. Satan's work of confusing Christ's true identity continued throughout the early church, and it continues up into our own day. As you and I live in this world you will and you speak to people about Jesus in fulfillment or in obedience to the great commission you are going to hear oh so many confused opinions and ideas about who Jesus is Usually they'll come from people who have never taken any time to actually read the Bible to understand who Jesus actually is You might hear things like he's a good teacher Or you might hear that he is someone who taught good things and we should model our lives after him. You might hear people saying he was always loving and he was never judging. You might hear any number of false and incomplete or heretical notions from our Lord. I heard one on TV this past week. Somebody in one of these talk shows said, you know, if Jesus were here, he would have been at the head of the gay pride parade leading the charge And in my head, I keep thinking to myself, tell me that you've never read the Bible without telling me you've never read the Bible. That's it. In scripture, in our text, Jesus reveals himself to be the holy God of Israel, the very same God who inspired the Old Testament writings, the law and the prophets, he is the second person of the triune God, distinct from the Father, but fully, completely shares in the essence of Godness along with the Father and the Spirit. And in taking on flesh, He became the God-Man, meaning He, was, he is truly and fully man and truly and fully God. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 2.9, In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And when we gather to worship him, in closing, when we gather to worship him, may we worship and exalt him and praise him according to who he has revealed himself to be in scripture. May the blinders that Satan is seeking to put on your eyes and on mine, may the confusion that he is hoping to dredge up in us as we are living in a world that has no idea who Jesus actually is, may all of those be just tossed away as we worship him as Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, inseparably one with the Father. This is your Lord. This is my Lord, the perfect God-man. Father, thank you for this interaction between Jesus and... And the Pharisees, thank you for committing to writing exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ said about himself so that there would be no confusion among those who truly read your word in obedience to the Holy Spirit. I praise you for the illumination of the Spirit helping us to see what the Pharisees could not see in your word as Jesus spoke to them. And I pray that you would shield us and you would protect us from the wiles and the craftiness and the strategies of the enemy to confuse us as to the identity of Jesus Christ. May we always see him, understand him, exalt him, praise him for who he is, the perfect God-man, son of the Father. God himself taking on flesh, making his dwelling among us to seek and to save the lost. And we ask that you would give us this hedge or this protection. We desperately plead for it. And then may we, in that blessing, go out into the world and disseminate that knowledge to the confused and darkened minds all over the world. And we ask for this power and the words and the knowledge in the name of Christ. Amen.